Uh, before we get started this evening, I want to take this few moments to thank you for the gifts you gave me on Sunday. In my judgment, this is a congregation that's very unique. And um, you do take care of me more than many, many local churches, not even ten times of our number. To me, this is a group of believers who are devoted to the Word of God. And as a, a pastor, a pastor really is the father of a local church in a, in a sense, of overseeing things. And what that means is that um, any father can never say that the children have reached where he is thoroughly satisfied. That doesn't happen. If you're a father, you keep moving the post, uh, goalposts for your children. So for this group, definitely, I know that you are striving to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm only just thankful that I'm a part of it. Your kindness, both individually and collectively, is appreciated. And I believe that the Lord will reward you. It's for this reason that I am relentless in bringing the truth to you because I know that what we are struggling for after salvation is not really about our salvation. It is about rewarding heaven. And God is faithful. He doesn't forget the goodness displayed by his children. So I am very grateful for this group of believers. Thank you for your continued kindness. And thank you for being here. Because one of my greatest delight is not so much the material things as the fact that you assemble here. That you come here every time we meet. I mean, majority of you, you don't miss. No matter what, you are here. That to me is one of the greatest rewards I can get on this planet as your pastor. So I thank you. I appreciate all you do. But as the year begins, my prayers and my request is that we all continue to move in the direction of honoring our Savior. Again, thank you for your kindness, generosity towards this year, Pastor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful that you show us your kindness. We are thankful that you answer our prayers. We are thankful that even when you showed your power yesterday night, you protected everyone in this group. You protected this area from any of your wrath. We thank you because we know you answered many prayers offered to you on behalf of this area when it comes to weather. For this we praise you. We thank you. Father, we have gathered this evening to study a portion of your word. We know that the human mind is not capable of focusing on anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, it's our request that the Holy Spirit will enable us this evening to hear precisely what you have for us. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Still in Exodus 
chapter 14 verses 29 through 31 this is our last time in the 14th chapter of Exodus Exodus chapter 14 verse 29 reads but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant now the message of this section of Exodus 14 verse 29 through 31 is that God or God's deliverance should lead to worship of him complete trust in him and respect for those he uses to communicate his word now we stated that we will expand on this message by making three assertions or propositions that are derived from the information given in the passage. The first proposition that we have considered is that the Lord's deliverance involves display of His power. A second proposition is that the Lord's deliverance involves rescuing the believer from the believer's enemy and the defeat of the enemy. We stated that there are two elements to this uh, proposition of deliverance of believer from the enemy and the defeat of the enemy. Those are the two elements of the proposition. Now we have considered the first element of uh, deliverance illustrated by the Lord's deliverance of Israel. So we proceed with the second, which is, again, the defeat of the enemy. Now this second element of the defeat of the enemy is illustrated by the death of Pharaoh and his army. It is the truth, I mean it is the death of Egyptian army that is given in the second clause of Exodus 14 verse 30 when it's very rich. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Now the clause indicates that the Lord brought the death of the Egyptian soldiers, the enemy of Israel, so that the Israelites were unable, were able here to witness their corpses. Furthermore, the clause reveals God's miraculous power displayed to Israel to, in order for them to observe God at work. Now it is possible that some Israelites might have thought or might have thought that some of the Egyptians escaped and so we are out of their sight. The Lord made sure the Israelites did not entertain such a thought. So he walked in such a way that the bodies of the Egyptians that pursued them washed up on the shore. Now under normal circumstances, it will take some days before corpses of drowning victims Wash up on the shore. But God displayed his power to cause the bodies of the Egyptians to wash up on the shore so Israel could witness their corpses. Now it is as if the Lord said to them that he not only drowned the enemies, but he had to show them the proof by washing up their corpses on the seashore. Now the incident of the corpses of the Egyptians washing, uh, washing up on the uh, seashore is not the only example of God's deliverance of his people by the mass death of their enemy. Now we previously cited the case of God directly killing 185,000 uh, soldiers of the Assyrian armies the enemies of Israel, so that their curses were seen by the, by the Israelites in the time 
of King Hezekiah as we read in 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 35 and 36. Second Kings chapter 19 verses 35 and 36. It is that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Now the same mass killing of by God's action and the display of the dead bodies occurred in the time of King Jehoshaphat when Moab and Ammon joined forces to attack Israel. God delivered Israel from his enemy through the death of the invading army, not by killing them directly, but acting on them in such a way they kill each other. So that the corpses were also all over the battlefield. As we read in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 21 through 26. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verses 21 and 26. Second Chronicles chapter 20 beginning of verse 21 it reads After consulting the people Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the armies, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Marcia to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder. And they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value. More than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Beraka, where they praise the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Berakah to this day. Now, so, here is that example. I mean, God can do whatever he wants to do in order to bring about his purpose. Jehoshaphat was a faithful king, a believer. And when he was threatened, he went straight to the Lord and said, Lord, this will threaten me. I don't, want, uh, I don't see that you're going to stand by and your name will be blasphemed. God said, no, that's not going to happen. And that's why he fought for them. And in this way, they didn't have to fire a shot. All they had to do was to sing and go to the war front. And God did the rest for them. Now, although the two examples we have cited involve display of the causes of the enemy before the Israelites, but God has also delivered Israel through the death of their enemies, as we find, for example, the deliverance of the Jews in time of Queen Esther, as stated in Esther, chapter 9, verses 5 and 10. 
Esther chapter 9 verses 5 through 10. Esther chapter 9 verses 5 through 10. It is the Jews were struck down I mean the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword killing and destroying them and they did what they pleased to those who hated them in the citadel of Susa the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men they also killed Pasha Nadalta Dalphon Ashpata, Porata, Edelia, Aridata, Pamashata, Arisea, Aridea, and Verseta. The ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadeta, the enemy of the Jews. May they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So here again, God delivered them by killing their enemies, but in this way he involved them directly. So anyway, God may deliver his people by complete elimination of the enemy, or he could walk in the enemy to accomplish his purpose. Now this statement is also demonstrated in the early church. Now Herod became the enemy of the church so that he went after the leaders of the church. He killed James and wanted to do the same with Peter. As we learn from Acts chapter 12 verses 1 through 4. Acts and hold on to chapter 12 of Acts once you get to it. Acts chapter 12 verses 1 through 4 reads It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast of a living bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now here, God intervened by rescuing Peter from jail through an angel But that was not the only thing God did to Herod, the enemy of the church. He eliminated him completely. As we can gather from the same chapter 12, look at verses 21 through 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. It reads, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Now what Luke summarized here uh, is is something that took at least uh, from Josephus we know that it took about three months. Between three to six months. When he said struck him and died it doesn't mean that uh, he died immediately. Uh, God struck him and he suffered in the most horrible way according to the uh, Jewish historian Josephus that he suffered um, all kinds of illness and 
his bowels and almost coming out or something. It was just awful the way uh, Joseph would describe it. But uh, Luke just summarized it. So that it didn't mean that he just dropped and that was it. No, it took some time. And my friend, there is nothing in my judgment for this planet though as horrible as having to die long and struggling to die. That is a very horrible experience. Especially in this case. And but uh, it's always a blessing if the Lord takes the believer just like that. Big time. It's a blessing. Always. Now Herod was not the only enemy of the early church. So was Saul. But the Lord, because of his plan, worked on him so that he got converted and became an apostle that he used to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. So the point is that God may eliminate the enemy in the deliverance of his people or he may walk on the enemy in such a way to bring about his purpose that will include relief for the suffering believer. Now our attention so far regarding the assertion that God will deliver a believer from the enemy through dates has been evident in the way the Lord dealt with Israel and the early church. But we also have examples of the Lord delivering an individual through death of their enemies. An individual. I've used Israel as a group. Let's look at the example from individuals. An example that uh, may surprise some of you is the death of Saul, King Saul. He became an enemy to David so that he wanted to kill him but first, of course. The Lord certainly tested David to see what he would do by twice handing uh, Saul to his hand to see what he would do. Now he did not kill Saul but believed that the Lord will eliminate his enemy himself in his own way as implied in David's answer to his men who urge him to kill Saul because they say, yeah, God has given him to you, why don't you just kill him? But this is why he said no. This is what he replied to them in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. First Samuel chapter 26 verses 9 through 11. It is that David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. Now here is David. He understood what is called authority. He's, though he's anointed king, he's not yet the king. Saul is still the king. And he understood you don't mess or play with God's appointed ruler. You don't do that and go free. So he didn't want to do that. But also he believed God will handle it himself. I don't have to use my hand. He will do it. Something that is you know, it's very difficult for all of us to do is just to be patient. And wait and see what God is going to do. We want, you know, God, you're not hurting. You're not hurting. Let me help you. No. He just be patient. The devil learned that. He knew that. That's why he said, oh, I'm not going to do it. God will do it. Let's just wait. Verse 11 said, But the Lord forbid that you lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the stair and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. He refused their request to kill him. However, God eliminated Saul as if his enemy and that he died in the battlefield as one of the ways David perceived God eliminating his enemy. He said maybe he'd be in the battlefield that's when the Lord would take him away. So that's the first example of 
a, a personal uh, I mean an individual with a personal enemy that God eliminated for his purpose. Another example of an individual that was delivered by God through the death of his enemy was Mordecai. Now Haman was an enemy of the Jews. And so that of Mordecai as implied in Esther chapter 3 verse 10. Esther and hold on to Esther once you get it Esther chapter 3 verse 10 it is so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamamedeta, the Egetite, the enemy of the Jews. Consequently, Haman tried to execute Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down to him. Being a Jew who understood that yes, you have respect for authorities but this is an unbeliever. You have to be very careful not to uh, give him the glory that, that God deserves so he wouldn't bow down. And so he wanted to eliminate him. So in a sense, Haman was, uh, was the enemy of the Jews and so that uh, he was so determined to get rid of uh, Mordecai. So he tried, but the Lord delivered Mordecai because Haman was put to death, according to Esther chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. Esther chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. Esther chapter 7 verses 8 through 10. It is, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now you remember when we studied the book of Esther, I explained this as how God works his things, even though the name or the word uh, God doesn't appear in that passage. Yeah, that is where God walked. And I, I believe, like I told you when we studied that, I believe that while he was in front, I mean, uh, while Herman was in front of the, the queen begging for his life, that the, an angel pushed him. That's what I believe, pushed him. And he fell. And just as he was falling on the woman, he across the husband. So, oh, so that's what we read here. He said, the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered him and face. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by him as house. He had, he had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged him on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king fully subsided. So this is an example of a person. So don't think that God cannot eliminate somebody who hates you. Always one of the things that you have to do as a believer is to remember... To have what they call, I mean, in the legal system, they use the term, a doctrine of clean hands. And that, for that means you don't get into court with some kind of criminal uh, undertaking of behind you. So, the doctrine of clean hands, 
Amen. In way really for us as believers, what that means is, even though somebody hates you, you cannot return that hate. Otherwise, you cannot expect the court of heaven to fortify you. Somebody hates you, you return with love. And let God work out the rest. Don't go back and, you know, because once you start hating back, then you've put yourself in the same position as one who hates you. So God is not going to do, fight, do any fighting for you. So anyway, the point is that our second proposition, that the Lord's deliverance involves rescuing the believer from the uh, believer's enemy, and the defeat of the enemy is one that is demonstrated by Israel, the church, and the individuals that we have cited. So that brings us into our third assertion regarding our passage. The top assertion of proposition necessary to expound on the message of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 29 through 31, is that the lost deliverance should impact you in two ways. Fear of the Lord and trust in Him and respect for your spiritual leader. Now, there are three elements to this proposition that are demonstrated in Exodus 14, verse 31. The three elements result from Israel's observation of the display of God's power as we read in the first clause of Exodus 14, verse 31. It reads, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians. Now literally, the Hebrew reads, And Israel saw the great hand that Yahweh displayed against Egypt. Now the word hand, uh, in the literal translation, is translated from a Hebrew word that literally could refer to finger as a digit of the hand, or the word can also refer to hand. However, figuratively, the word could mean control or power. In Exodus 14 verse 31, it is used figuratively with a sense of power, as that which the Lord demonstrated in his miraculous deliverance of the Israelites. Now this power of God was displayed in how he killed the Egyptians that were in pursuit of Israel. When the Israelites saw such display of power, it produced three results in them that we describe as the three elements of the third proposition of the message that we're considering. The first element of the third proposition is really the fear of the Lord by Israel. Now it is this that is given in the next sentence of Exodus 14, chapter 1, when it says, The people feared the Lord. Now, really, what does it really mean to fear the Lord? To answer this, we need to briefly examine a Hebrew word uh, uh, the word that is, uh, from which it is translated. Now, it, the Hebrew word Yare is a word that may be used either positively or negatively. Positively, it may mean to revere, to revere, that is, to show profound respect for someone, as it is used to describe the attitude an Israelite king should have regarding the Lord because of reading God's word as stated in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 19. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy Chapter 17, verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19 reads, It is to be with him, that's a copy of the law, and he is to read it 
all the days of his life. Now here is what is expected of Israel's king. That they read the law all the days of their life. Now here is, by application you see the reason God gave that to them is if they don't remember what's in the law they act differently. And the same thing that happens to us. All you need to do is just I mean if you really if you're serious I'm not talking those who are just you know dancing around with the, with the Bible or dancing around with devotion to the law but if you're serious all you have to do is go a day or two without getting something from the word of God inside your soul and just see how you function. Start acting like you wouldn't you know like an unbeliever. Just for one day or two. But the more you is in your face every day it helps you and guides you so that you don't forget who you are in Christ and start acting like somebody who is not a believer. So this is why for the kings of Israel God wants them to read it all the days of their life. Here it says so that he may learn to revere the Lord. He is God. See that is the way we all learn to revere God is by reading and studying his word. Now I'm not saying, I mean, you can read the Bible all you want, but really you have to have somebody continuously teaching it to you. It's not enough that you can read unless you have the gift of teaching. If not, God's intention is not that you can do it on your own. It is His intention is that you must have somebody who teaches you the Word of God. But in this case, all God wanted is uh, the king just read the law, read the law. But anyway, says, so revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Now negatively, the word may refer to being in a state of feeling of great distress and deep concern of pain or unfavorable circumstance and so means to be afraid, to be afraid. As that is the way the word is used to describe the state of mind of the Philistines when the Israelites brought the ark of God into the battlefield. Because once the ark came into the battlefield, even though Israel was losing as soon as that came in, their morale went so high, they started shouting. And the Philistines said, oh dear God has come into the battlefield. This is what we read in 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 7. First Samuel, chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Samuel reads, The Philistines were afraid, that's our Hebrew word, Yare, uh, Yare. A God has come into the camp. They said, we are in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Anyway, in our passage of Exodus 14 verse 31, the word is used really in a positive sense of being in a state of regarding with feelings of respect and reverence. In other words, it has that idea of Reference, or uh, that is evident in, in reverence. Thus, when it is said that the people fear the Lord, that means that Israel was in awe of Yahweh. Of course, a person who is in awe of the Lord or who fears the Lord shows it through avoiding anything. That will please the Lord. Now if you are afraid of somebody. If you fear someone in the right way. You will want to not do. You will not want to do anything that will displease them. So if you say you fear the Lord. That means you are a person. Who is concerned about not displeasing him. That's the only way you can describe yourself. As someone who fears the Lord. If you are very careless. You can't really fear the Lord. You have to be somebody who is very conscientious. You want to be sure that everything you do, that you are not trying to displease him. 
That's what we mean in this way. Consequently, it's not surprising that Job was described as a man who fears God in the sense that he avoids evil as we read in Job chapter 1 verse 1. Job Job chapter 1 verse 1 Job chapter 1 verse 1 reads In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job This man was blameless and upright he feared God look at the next thing and shunned evil in other words once you fear the Lord the way we can tell is how you look to you know things about sin in any way how you look at sin that tells you whether you actually fear the Lord if you are appalled with sin then you fear the Lord now, not just on other people, but on yourself. Because anyone who fears the Lord, you, you just, it tells you that you are disobedient or that you don't do what he says. That shows that you are fearing him. But if you are just, oh, well, I did it, okay. You don't fear him. If you fear him, he will stop you. Either sin in you or in somebody else. So indeed, avoidance of evil is consistently used though in describing a person who fears God, as for example, in the instruction given in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. It reads, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Look at the next thing. And shun evil. Now it is difficult to see how anyone can claim them to fear the Lord and disobey his word. Thus, when the Lord asserted that Abraham feared him, he stated that Abraham obeyed him. Despite the difficult demand put on him by God, as we read in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 12. Hold on to uh, put your marker in Genesis because I'll go to one passage and come right back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 verse 12 reads Do not lay a hand on the boy He said Do not do anything to him Now I know That you fear God Because you have not withheld from me Your son Your only son Or your unique son really So you see He feared God So whatever God said do He did it Including go there and sacrifice your child if they are the Lord enough, he will do whatever the Lord says. Anyway, that aside, though, the first element then of the third assertion we have made is Israel's profound respect and, and awe for Yahweh. Now, so if you appreciate your salvation, then you should stand in awe of the Lord by being obedient to his word. The second element of the third proposition that we have made is Israel's trust in the Lord as in the verbal phrase where we're studying of Exodus 14.31 when it says and put their trust in him. The expression put trust is translated from a Hebrew word with a basic meaning of to be firm or to be trustworthy or to be safe. However, in the Hebrew form that is used in our passage, it could mean to stand firm or to stand still, as it is used to describe what an excited horse would do 
When a trumpet sounds in a battlefield, for example, as stated in Job chapter 39, verse 24. Job Job chapter 39, verse 24. Job 39, verse 24 reads, In friends' excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. Now the most prevalent meaning of the Hebrew word is to believe. Now the meaning to believe may have the sense of to trust or to put faith in, as it is used to describe Abraham's response to God's promise to him as recorded in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Genesis, and hold on to Genesis, Genesis chapter 15 verse Six. It is Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now the meaning to believe may have the sense of to regard something as trustworthy or to believe to be true. As it is used to describe Jacob's response when he learned that Joseph was alive in Egypt According to Genesis chapter 45, verse 26. Genesis chapter 45, verse 26. He reads, They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. You know, he didn't think what they said was true. Now it is in the first sense of really to put, uh, to trust or to put faith that, that our word is used in Exodus 14 verse 31 that we are studying. So Israel put their trust in the Lord because of the miraculous display of God's power. They did what some people do when they see something Miraculously done by God. Thus, during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, we have repeated assertions of people believing because of his miracles. Now, when the Lord Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine, the impact, we are told, is that his disciples believed in him, according to John chapter 2, verse 11. John chapter 2 verse 11 John chapter 2 hold on to John John chapter 2 verse 11 reads this the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee he does revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many of those who were present believed in him as recorded still in John. Look at chapter 11, verse 45. John 11, verse 45. It reads, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. Now we also have other cases where miracles were done, like people like uh, uh, Evangelist Philip in Samaria, people believed. But the one I want to bring your attention is when Apostle Paul empowered by the Holy Spirit, inflicted blindness to Elimas the sorcerer that was trying to keep the proconsul from believing. 
or paying attention to what the apostle was uh, saying. And as soon as he did that, spoke to him and he got blind. We see a response from the proconsul, recorded in Acts chapter 13, verse 12. Acts chapter 13, verse 12. Acts chapter 13 verse 12 reads When the proconsul saw what happened he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord that's the Lord Jesus Christ So the point is that miracles often cause some to believe in the Lord but not everyone will believe because of miracle as we may learn from the fact that some of the Jews they now believe in the Lord Jesus Christ despite the miracles that they saw as stated in John chapter 12 verse 37. John John chapter 12 verse 37. He reads, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in, in him. So, just miracles, just as somebody sees a miracle, does not guarantee that they're going to believe. So, be that as it may, it is interesting that we are informed that the Israelites put their trust in the Lord because of the miraculous display of his power in dividing the Red Sea. So they cross on dry ground, but the Egyptians were drowned. Now their belief in the Lord is really a shift from their blaming of Moses for delivering the matter of Egypt. Now they did not trust that the Lord would deliver them completely as a promise uh, through Moses when they saw the Egyptian army in a hot pursuit. But all that changed because of the miraculous display of God's power that they witnessed. So they believed God's promise as the psalmist later on uh, stated in Psalm 106 verse 12. Psalm 106 verse 12. Psalm 106 106 verse 12 and hold on to that psalm and put your marker there because I'll go to one passage and come right back to the same chapter. Psalm 106 verse 12 reads, Then they believed his promise and sang his praise after they seen that. Now of course, we must be careful to recognize that miracles will not sustain a person's trust in the Lord. The truth that miracle will not sustain a person in their uh, believing in the Lord or their growth really is demonstrated by the fact that later during the Exodus we also read of Israel not trusting or believing in the Lord as we read in Numbers chapter 14 verse 11. Numbers Chapter 14, verse 11. Numbers, chapter 14, verse 11 reads, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the miracles and signs I have performed among them? So, the psalmist also reference the fact that Israel's trust in the Lord and in his promise was short-lived because they easily forgot his deliverance. As we read now, go back to that Psalm 106, look at verse 13. Psalm 106 verse 13 reads, But they soon forgot what he had done, and did not wait for his counsel. So anyway, 
we should recognize that without being grounded in the word of God, a person's faith may be shaky in face of sufferings or difficulties of life. It is because Israel was not grounded in the word of God that they wavered in their faith. Now this notwithstanding, if you observe God's miraculous display of his power, that should cause you to have faith in him, although your belief may be short-lived, if you are not grounded in the word of God. Now the third element of this third proposition that we have uh, given is Israel's trust in Moses, as stated in in the last phrase of Exodus 14, verse 31. It is, and in Moses' servant. Now this phrase is governed by the same Hebrew word. We indicated means to put trust in someone. So then we should understand that Israel did not put their trust in Moses as they did with the Lord. They merely accepted or had confidence that what he says to them about God is true. Now the Lord was certainly concerned that Israel should trust or have confidence in Moses in the sense that he was God's representative to them. Thus even when the Lord came to Israel on Mount Sinai, he expressed his desire and that desire was for Israel to put their trust in Moses as their leader. As we read in Exodus Chapter 19, verse 9. Exodus. Exodus. Chapter 19, verse 9. It is, The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So we contain then that the phrase of Exodus 14, 31 when it says, and in Moses his servant implies that Israel accepted Moses' word from the Lord as true. So they had confidence in him and respect after the miraculous display of God's power in dividing the race. Now, our interpretation, of course, is implied by that phrase, his servant. That servant there, uh, the Hebrew word used, actually, in this particular context of Exodus 14, verse 31, has the sense of minister, or one who serves God in a special capacity, as that's the way the word is used to describe the prophets, for example. Now this aside then, the fact remains that because of what Israel observed, they had confidence in Moses uh, as well as Moses as God's representative to them. Now in addition, the people had respect for him as God's minister to them. So it is important that as a believer, you should respect your spiritual leaders as God wanted the Israelites to do with Moses. Now this requirement of respect for spiritual leaders is stated by the Holy Spirit through the human author of the book of Hebrews in form of obeying them in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. He reads, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no advantage to you. Now it seems to me that the shallowness in the spiritual life of Christians today that is in part due to many believers do not trust what their spiritual leaders communicate to them. So if you believe that your spiritual leader 
is teaching you the truth. Why then will you not do it? Why will you not carry out what you instructed? And that is part of the reason many of us as Christians are very shallow. We are not grounded because we don't think or we don't even believe what some of our pastors or teachers tell us. Uh, you know, and that is the problem we're facing. So in any way, with this statement though, we come to the end of Exodus 14 verses 29 through 31. But as we end, let me remind you one more time that the message of this section is that God's deliverance should lead to worship of Him, should lead to complete trust in Him and respect for those He uses to communicate His word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of Your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us to the things that we have studied this evening so that we learn to actually revere you by being obedient and respect those you have put over us as far as communication of your word. This is a request in Christ's name.